Well, good morning and welcome back to our series in the New Testament book of Ephesians. Um, I hope you had a protein drink this morning because we're going to do some heavy, heavy doctrinal lifting. In our passage this morning, we're going to wrestle with one of the most difficult, mysterious, and I think, I think most encouraging of all biblical truths. So do me a favor, if you haven't already, open your Bibles and Bible devices to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. If for some reason you're like, I want a hard copy of the Bible, I don't have one. I believe we have Bibles in the back on the table. If for some reason they're not there, just come talk to me and I'll make sure we get a Bible in your hand. All right. Hey, Paul is actually so excited. He does this from time to time. He's so excited about what he's about to write that he breaks out in what's known as ecstatic praise. He breaks out into song. So Paul, I know it feels a little awkward to sing this, but Paul begins to somewhat sing this, this passage this morning. Let's enjoy the text together. Praise be, verse 3, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship, through daughtership, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the, the one he loves. In him we have redemption. You say, what's redemption? It just means to purchase or to buy back. In him we have redemption through Jesus' blood. We have been purchased we have been bought back through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished, what a word, lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known, verse 9, to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, um, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the deposit? guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. And you're not going to believe this, um, and Paul is known for this, but this is one long sentence in Greek. 202 words, a sentence that theologians love and English teachers hate. One long, spirit-inspired, run-on sentence. But I love this passage. It speaks to our identity as children of God. It talks about being in Christ or under Christ or through Christ six times. This is the theme. Kevin's going to really hit this hard next week. This is the theme of the book of Ephesians. Beloved, we're in Christ. We're, we're in Christ, right? The more I read it, the more I am encouraged about my own salvation and what, what it means to actually be a son of God. Now, just a reminder, remember Jim's 
challenge for us. Read the book of Ephesians once once a week. It'll take you, depends on how fast you read, I'd say 20 to 25, maybe 30 minutes, six chapters, not real long. Uh, but I promise you, and I don't make promises very often, but I promise you, if you do this, you will be encouraged. You'll be in challenge. You'll be challenged and you'll be blessed. Okay, some review of what Jim said last week. The book of Ephesians is considered to be um, one of Paul's masterpieces. Why? Because he packs everything essential for us to know uh, about the Christian life in six short chapters. The first three chapters are filled with truth, with doctrine about who God is and what he has done in the gospel. The last three chapters offer some of the most practical instruction we'll find anywhere in the Bible. The importance of what does it mean to be filled by Holy Spirit? Forgiveness, marriage, conflict management, family, workplace relationships, spiritual warfare, prayer, and and a host of other day-to-day issues. But that's partially where people read it wrongly. Here's what they do. They, they treat it primarily as either a book of doctrine or a book that's practical, and really it all works together. Ephesians was written first and foremost, however, as a survival manual for a, a church in a very hostile environment. Does that sound familiar? As Jim said, Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, was one of the most impressive and intimidating cities of the ancient world. It was on a seaport right at the intersection of Europe and Asia, which made it one of of the main um, trade hubs of the Roman Empire. It was cosmopolitan. It was multicultural. Religiously, it was like a, a buffet. The city housed 50 different temples, including the largest temple of the ancient world dedicated to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the world. Sexual immorality was a literal industry. Um, most of the temples offered some kind of prostitution as part of the, the worship ritual. Um, what happened in Ephesus stayed in Ephesus, right? All this to say, it was not a, a Christian-friendly place, which is what makes this letter so timely and relevant for us. Most of us are in environments not friendly to Christianity. All of us can definitely, can, can you sense the shift in our culture? For, for some of you, that's your, your school or your workplace or maybe even, maybe even your family. For some of our, our global workers who are around the world, they're literally in places where it is illegal to live out your Christian faith. So this morning we're going to dive into this book because it will show us how we can survive and thrive in those places. But before we do, here are two questions that every so often we're going we're gonna to want you to ask yourself. And we'll bring these up every so often as we're going through the book of Ephesus. Number one, um, how is God making us into a new people? We'll see a lot of that this morning. And then secondly, um, how do we partner in his creative work? So here we go. Um, Paul opens up this letter with a concept that many of us find difficult. Write this word down. I didn't even put it on the screen because I know it would trigger some people. Predestination. Predestination. Verse 4, again, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, underline that, in love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 11, let's skip down. 
In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Which raises all kinds of questions, but I want to highlight two this morning that I know are running through your mind. Number one, what about free will? Number two, why does God, it seems like he chooses some people and not others? Those are great questions. We'll deal with those in a minute. But before we go any further, let me give us a rule um, that we struggle with in our culture. Because we have a phone with the internet, we think we know all things, don't we? But if a pandemic told us anything, it's that we're the smartest people in the world and we have all the answers, right? Um, but let me, let, me, let me start us with this. This is really important. This is kind of a rule for approaching the Bible. There are some things about God that we'll never fully understand. Here is a verse that has really helped me out. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And immediately, tell me your secrets, God. I think he'll unpack those over eternity. Jim, again, is going to be talking here in a few weeks about God lavishes his love on us eon after eon after eon after eon. And I think we'll learn about a lot of those things, about all those things. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. I mean, do do you see that there's a distinction between the secret revealed things and the secret things? Thus, and I want you to see this behind me, our responsibility is to believe and obey what is revealed, not to figure out all that is hidden. And, And... That some things remain hidden really aggravate a lot of theologians and lay people who insist on having it all figured out. I love this quote. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it by one of our early church fathers. He said this. This is a great quote. He said, um, it's good to talk about predestination. Hey, but let's take care of the orphans and widows first. Can I get an amen? I mean, I, I was in seminary. I enjoyed it. I loved it. I called it my angry um, Calvinist years, okay? And I still have some of that. We're going to talk about that. But I, I would talk to a lot of my buddies, and man, they were just consumed with this. I'm like, hey, what about sharing the gospel? And they just kind of went quiet. Uh, no, I just want to talk about the hidden things all the time, nonstop. You ever have a friend like that? You're like, come on, really, please. Remember. We're talking about God. God. So it shouldn't surprise us that there remains a realm of which our minds cannot fully understand. Remember, just because you can't explain it fully doesn't mean it's not true. Case in point, um, Trinity, suffering, the book of Revelation, and fried ice cream. How do they do that? How do they do that? So we approach this subject understanding that we are delving into um, realities that our minds can barely grasp. Now, now hold on, hold on. It doesn't mean um, we don't talk about it or have different opinions about it, but it does mean we approach it with what? Humility. Ah. At New Heights, um, some of you have learned this, some of you are new, some of you don't like it and you're not coming back, but that's okay. At New Heights, we talk about hard things. Why? Because God talks about hard things. A couple of weeks ago, a, a gentleman who's new to our church, uh, over the last six months, he said to me, he goes, why do you guys, it, it was a compliment, but he was stunned. He's like, you guys talk about so many hard things. Why do you torture yourself that way? Because God wants us to talk about those things. 
It's why, for the most part, we teach verse by verse. We don't want to miss what God wants us to hear. So what exactly are the scriptures saying here, and why does God tell us these things? Why does he want us to know them? First, verse 4, notice um, when it says we were chosen. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. So if you're a, a, a new earth person, you're thinking... 10,000 years ago, he chose us. If you're an old earth person, you're thinking millions of years. Regardless, it's a long time ago, right? I mean, I just let's just stop for a second. This is an unbelievable, awesome thought. Before the world was ever established, God knew me, and he loved me. There's never been a time in eternity when God did not know you and love you. For as long as God has been in existence from eternity past, he's known about us, cherished us, and planned to redeem and save us. Sometimes people think that this verse means that God simply just knew beforehand who would choose him as if he looked into the future and said, oh, I see that that um, Lee Epstein will choose me, so I choose him back. But that's not what this verse says. It says, he set his love on me and chose me before my mom and dad ever thought about me. Before I was a twinkle in Lee and Len Epstein's mind, God was thinking about me. From verse 3, we, when the process of our salvation begins to the end of verse 14, God is the one taking all the action. Uh, I want us to take a quick look at the blessings of salvation in our passage. He, he chooses. He predestines and adopts. He bestows grace. He redeems. He forgives. He lavishes. He makes known. And he purposes. He unites together in Christ. He works. He seals. Did you notice something? Besides, it's Trinitarian. All these passages involve God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But did you notice something? It's all God. Well, what do we do? Um, We listen, we receive, we believe, we hope. We listen, we receive, we believe, we hope. We listen, we receive it. I believe by faith, and I put my hope in it. It's amazing. You say, wait a second, what part of salvation are we responsible for? Here's what I did. I did all the sinning. Jesus did all the saving. Remember one of the sins of the garden, but the main one was the serpent going, don't you want to be like God? You say, well, um, why did he choose me? What was it about me? Was it, was it maybe your striking good looks or your family lineage? Was it your potential? Did God um, see that you were going to make a great Christian leader and say, man, i got to have that person on my team? Was God like Billy Joel? You know, you've got a way about you. I don't know what it is, but I know that I can't really live without you. <sighs> yes, I, I went Billy Joel this morning. <laughs> you got a way. Oh, I'm going to start singing that, man. Not at all. Here's one of the most mystifying passages in the Old Testament. I think the New Testament as well. Um, It's God explaining to Israel why he chose them. 
He said this in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 7, the Lord did not set his affection or his love on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all peoples. Okay, well, why? Because the Lord loved you. Please, please hear this. God didn't choose Israel for its potential. He didn't choose them because they were great. They became great because God chose them. You say, well, whoa, 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 whoa. Lee, uh, maybe it, it was that I wasn't as sinful as other people, that God saw that deep down I had a good and teachable heart. We keep coming back to us, don't we? That's what the devil wants us to do. Just keep bringing it back to you, baby. It's all about you. Look again, Deuteronomy chapter 9, and verse 6. Um, Moses, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is carrying this theme forward. Um, God says, understand then that it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God has given you this good land to possess. Well, it's not? No, no, no. By the way, you're stiff-necked. In other words, it wasn't your good heart either. Actually, your heart was even harder than most. In chapter 2, which Jim will cover in two weeks, um, but let me just touch on it. Paul explains you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead is dead. There's not levels of dead. There's no such thing as mostly dead. You're either dead or you're not. Jesus did not go around Palestine saying, oh, 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 there's some life in that one. Does he still have a pulse? Let me check. Okay, maybe I can raise him. No, when Jesus rose people from the dead, they were dead. They were fully dead. God didn't choose us because we were lovable. In fact, again, in, in chapter 2, Paul is going to tell us that sin had, had made us God's enemies. He calls us sons and daughters of disobedience, objects of his wrath. And, and I know we say, well, yeah, I made mistakes, but I'm still mostly lovable. Um, let me be kind here and say that, yes, there are lovable things about us, but our rebellion against God so outweighs um, those things that we are classified as, I didn't say this, God did, his, his enemy. If you would have known me before I became a Christian, you would not have said, hey, you know, Lee's a pretty good guy. He's kind and tender, and beneath all that teenage angst, he's got a good heart, like none of the above. I was devious, angry, deceitful, and self-consumed, um, and those were my good days. Those were my good days. I had no desire for God, the things of God, or anything holy. I got in trouble all the time. I got my friends in trouble all the time. I was just trouble. Just trouble. So what was it then about us that caused him to choose us? And this is the mystifying part. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 again. The Lord did not set his affection or love on us and choose us because, you know, we're more numerous than other peoples. He's talking about Israel. But why? Because the Lord loved us. Um, he loves us just because he, well, he loves us. Fatherly love doesn't really have an explanation. I, I, I think of it as the way I love my sons, Levi and Noah. Um, do I love Levi and Noah because they're the smartest or best looking or most athletic or they're super, super kind? No, I don't love them for any of those things. I just love them. And you're the same way, right? Unless you're a horrible parent. <laughs> I mean, just, just like... Horrible parent. That's why often um, when your kid does something wrong and you know it's wrong, you still stick up for your kid. Yeah, I know they tore that guy's ear off, but he was having a bad day. And I love him. 
Oh, okay. You say, well, if God loved me before I loved him, doesn't that violate my free will? No. Um, the Bible says his choice is never against our will, but always in concert with it. In verse 4, God says, I chose you before the creation of the world. But in other scriptures, Jesus said, Whoever, whosoever um, will may what? Come. Jesus explained it in John chapter 6 and verse 44 when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Our choice to come and the Father's drawing go hand in hand. Do I understand this? No. But the Greek word for um, draw here carries the idea of a desperately hungry person being drawn to food. So this is, this is what God did to us. He created a hunger in us to know Jesus, and that hunger drew us to Jesus. Again, my story. As a high schooler, um, growing up in Southern California in a, in a, uh, in a non-religious home, I drove myself for six straight days to an old-fashioned, independent, fundamental Baptist revival. I didn't have to. You've heard me tell the story. Um, I had a Ford Fiesta, Ford Fiesta, had a racing stripe, four on the floor, sunroof. It was a party on wheels. I drove my party on wheels um, for six straight days to this fundamental Baptist, independent fundamental Baptist revival. Um, I didn't have to. None of my family were believers. They were actually hostile towards God. They laughed at me. It wasn't for a girl. It certainly wasn't for fun. Um, why? I just felt compelled. I didn't know at the time, but Holy Spirit was drawing me. I'd go by and pick up my buddies like, oh, man, another night. I'm like, another night. We got to go. They're like, the pews are hard. They're wood. I know, but I got to go. I got to go. I have to go. You see, our problem is not that we wanted to choose God and we couldn't. Our problem is that deep down, none of us want to choose God. We prefer to rule ourselves and be the center of our own universe. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. So God, now get this. Through the preaching of the gospel and the power of Holy Spirit and the washing of the word changes our hearts so that we begin to want God. And this is a divine mystery, I know. You want your mind blown? Here's some homework besides reading Ephesians. Here's my homework for you. Go home today and read another letter from Paul to the Romans, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. And you're like, wow, Romans 9, God chooses. Romans 11, God chooses. God chooses. Whoa, whoa, whoa. we can't forget Romans 10. Romans 10, how lovely are the feet of those who what? Preach good news. Oh, how can they hear unless what? They're sent. How can they hear unless what? You tell them. You're like, man, this is a mystery. Are you okay with some mystery? I am. I am. You say, well, why didn't God choose everybody? Um, to be honest, that is beyond my pay grade. It is. But let me just say two things. First, um, keep in mind that God is not obligated to extend salvation to anyone. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. For all have sinned in what? Fallen short of the glory of God. You, I just, you deserve hell. So do I. Yeah, but, no but. What is fair is that we all deserve eternal death. That any of us have a chance to receive forgiveness is a free gift of undeserved Grace, like what does grace mean? It's undeserved merit. You didn't deserve it. 
But second, and this is part, and this is the part of this discussion where a certain amount of mystery sets in. I can live in this tension. You've heard Jim and I talk about this. You've been here for any amount of time. We use a lot of the same language. We do tend to agree on this together. Not all of us on staff do. I'll talk about uh, that more in a second. But there is a mystery involved here. We try to stay out of ditches. Scripture never presents a lack of God's choosing as the reason why someone didn't come. Not once. It's always on us. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, Jesus said this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were what? You were not willing. That's on them. Second Peter chapter three and verse nine. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but what? He wants everyone to come to repentance. The Bible itself ends with, this is pretty cool. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. And I realize there is a mystery involved in adoption and predestination. Uh, but here, here is what is revealed. Now, by the way, this is my opinion. Not everyone on staff at, at New Heights or even all of our elders have the same opinion. And to, to me, this is one of the beautiful things about New Heights. Now, I get it. For some people, it makes them really uncomfortable. I don't mean to demean anybody. You're here, so I think you want to be here. I'm hoping you want to be here. But for some people, it's like, just tell me, tell me what, to, what to think, right? Or just, I want to go to a place that has confirmation bias, bias. I believe it. They believe it. I believe I'm good. But at New Heights, uniformity doesn't mean um, that we have to have conformity in all things. At New Heights, we can be unified without all of us having to believe the exact same thing on what I call second-order issues. Right? So you're like, man, I'm, I'm a hardcore Calvinist. I, I believe strongly in election. Someone over here goes, I'm a hardcore Arminian. It's my choice. I'm somewhat in the muddy middle. Can we agree to disagree? This is a second order issue. First order issue, salvation by grace through faith alone. No debate. No debate. We ain't messing with that. Well, yeah, I'm a good, no, you're not a good person. You can't work your way to heaven. Trinity, first order issue. Sorry, we ain't messing. Jesus is God, first order issue. No debate. God's definition of marriage, first order issue, no debate. They're first order issues. We're like, okay, we get it. Second order issue. So this is what I, I believe. Can, I, can we get this up there? If you're a Christian, it's because God chose you. If you're not, it's because you have chosen to reject God. And the Lord is not willing that you should perish, but that you should come to repentance. You're like, whoa, whoa, mind blown. I, I know, it's, it's where I'm at. Are we chosen? In, in one sense, we have the power to decide that. If we choose to repent and believe in Jesus, we're chosen. I, I believe the choice is ours. Okay, um, now that we're done with the easy stuff, um, I feel like I just had a full tissue body massage right there. For the rest of our time, let's look at two blessings. You're like, there's so many more. I know I don't have time. Again, let's go back to the buffet analogy. It's like you're at a good buffet and you, and you eat 
you know, you go through the buffet the first time, you're like, oh, it's so good. Then you're full. You're like, I can't eat anymore. We don't have time to go back to the buffet line. So I'm only going to pick two, okay? Just two blessings that come from being in Christ. First blessing is this, the blessing of holiness. Verse four, again, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to what? To be holy and blameless in his sight. Let's define holiness. Um, it means uh, to be sacred and to be set apart. And, and those who claim Jesus as Lord are called hagiawi or saints. As believers, we are literally set apart. We're made holy because of our relationship with, with Jesus. So if we're a Christian here this morning, or you're online and you're watching this, and you're like, I love Jesus. It means that we're... Um, in Christ, and that means that that we're um, positionally holy. That is, and I want to explain it more so you'll see it behind me. God sees us in the place of Christ, and out of our positional holiness, for the first time ever as a child of God, we can live practical holiness. Because we're holy, we can live holy. Because Christ has made us holy, we can live holy like Christ. Ultimately, um, the world may not understand you as a Christian. Your believing family, unbelieving family, pardon me, your friends, coworkers, neighbors, they may not praise you. They may criticize your decision to live a set-apart um, lifestyle. When I first became a believer, shortly after, I began to get discipled. And as, as the Spirit of God took the Word of God with a man of God, it changed my life. It wrecked me. And so um, I went from the leader of the pack, leading my friends into acts of unrighteousness, to the guy trying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be holy. So it used to be you went into my room, and it was just full of all inappropriate stuff. Then my buddies would come over, who I was still trying to share the gospel with, and I had scriptures all over my wall. And there were scriptures about how young men should treat sisters with all purity. There are scriptures about not being angry, slow to speak. I had my mom, who wasn't even a believer, write those scriptures out and put them on, my, on the wall. Because I'm now positionally in Christ. I want to be holy. But my friends were like, what are you doing? Like some guys wanted to fight. They were angry. You're better than we're. And I'm not. I'm not. Um, They may mock your sacred values, but ultimately we live for an audience of one. And I'm not saying that we're, we're perfect and we'll never sin. And I'm not saying that this is something that we will ultimately um, perfect in this life. I don't believe in sinless perfection in this life. I don't. But it's something that we can make progress in this life. Christ is our holiness and he makes us holy. And, that, and here's how this changes everything. If our identity is in Christ and he has made us holy, you ready for this? It changes our activities. It changes our, our decisions that we make in, in our life. Holiness is always attached to sanctification. So I'm being set apart daily for Christ, but only as I live a, a holy and blameless life by the power of Holy Spirit. And when I, I, I do that, um, I treat my wife different. I'm careful with the things I, I put in my mind, the things I, I watch. Like my checkbook, well, that's an old phrase, my pocketbook, what do I say? <laughs> my money, uh, I, I look at it differently. It's not my money. My parenting style, it changes. Um, so uh, let's, let's get real practical. Let's say you're a teenager. 
Um, but if you identify only as a teenager, you're probably going to rebel against your parents because that's what teenagers do. But if you're a teenager in Christ, Christ has made you, you holy. You should, you should be one who's compelled by the love of God to act in a way that is holy. Let's say um, you're a college student, but you identify only as a college student. Well, then you're going to get drunk and break commandments and act foolishly because that's what college kids do. But if you say, no, 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 I'm a college student in Christ, and Christ has made me holy. I want to love him, and I want to, be, I want to live holy. Then out of the positional holiness will come practical holiness because of who you are that changes what you do. Let's say you're someone who's single, and, 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 and if your identity is, I'm single, well, then there's the, there's the possibility that you're going to get caught up in a lifestyle that embraces all sorts of sinful things. You might think your body is your own, your money is your own, and your choices are your own. But if you say, no, I'm a single person in Christ, and Christ was single, and I'm single, and he's made me positionally holy, and I want to live in a way that's practically holy. That identity will change your activity. Does this make, does this make sense? Are you tracking? So oftentimes our identity is this. This is what happens. The devil loves this. Well, I'm a teenager. I'm a college student. I'm single. I'm married. I'm divorced. I'm a widower. But as followers of Jesus, our identity is in Christ and that, that identity carries us through all seasons of life. That's why I'm amazed. And I'll, I'll pick on, I'll pick on myself. Um, a lot of times, believers in America, not, not a lot of other places, but in America, maybe first world countries, they get to be 50, 55, 60, and they're like, I'm checking out. What do you mean you're checking out? The best of who you'll ever be comes right now because you have all this, this wisdom, all this experience. You're checking out. Yeah, hitting a beach, hitting a condo, hitting a, the lake house, hitting retirement. You're checking out? If your identity is in Christ, you don't check out. If your identity is in, I'm retired and I worked 30 years. Well, okay. Okay. In Christ, we have the blessing of being holy. Second blessing is the blessing of um, being sealed. Hey, um, full disclosure here. This might be awkward because you might be sitting next to someone who can do this. How many of you would like an inheritance? Raise your hand. What do you? No, I don't want anything. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Here's what's really cool. God um, has an inheritance. God's a father and we're his children. We've been adopted into his family. He loves all of his kids. And so he gives us uh, an inheritance. Um, my, this is interesting. My, and my siblings weren't happy about it. And I wasn't happy about it either. It, it was inappropriate. But my father um, left me everything when he died. Everything went to me. Um, he left me his boat, the boat he, he lived on. Oh, there it is. 47 foot Krogan yacht trawler. Had another small boat you could lower in the water. It had mopeds on it. Thing was incredible. It's probably worth a couple million dollars now. It's unbelievable. Um, one little problem. The bank owned it. No boat for you. <laughs> yeah, my siblings started to laugh. Um, he also left me, and back then it was pretty cool, a 1993 Nissan Pathfinder. It was tricked out to go what's called pre-running in Baja. Yeah, I know it doesn't look as great, but really it's great shocks, the whole bit. Um, one little problem. The bank owned it. No SUV for, for you. Um, my father left me all of his money. I want you to see that. Yes. Yes. Again, one little problem. All of his bank, he had a bunch, all of his bank accounts were empty. Sorry, no money for you. So what did I actually get as an inheritance? Um, I can say it in five words. Set it and forget it. 
he left me a Ronco rotisserie oven without the chickens. Without the chickens. I still use that every Thanksgiving. I use that oven. So what's your point, Lee? Even if someone leaves you all sorts of stuff and money, nothing wrong with that, it's still going to fade. It's all going to disappear. You can't take it with you to heaven. All inheritances, all earthly inheritances are fleeting. But get this. I love this about our God. How much does he care about us? Our Heavenly Father has left us a down payment for eternity in the person of Holy Spirit. Here's God's inheritance for his children. Verse 13, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, now get this, you were marked in him with a seal. So God put a seal on us. And and I know this is antiquated, but it would be like a, a wax seal. And you'd put the wax, you'd melt the wax, you'd put the seal on a letter, then you would imprint that seal with your initials that said it it was you, right? And then when the time came, only you could break the seal, only you could open it up. So God says, I love you so much, I'm putting a seal on you, the Holy Spirit. And so when the day comes, when you stand before me in eternity, and I open up your that seal, I go, you're mine. Holy Spirit guarantees that. When you believe you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, um, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. By the way, again, did you catch this? The entire Godhead is involved in these blessings. And, and what he says here is, is he is the guarantee of our inheritance. The What? The guarantee, he's the down payment until we acquire possession of it. What he says is, once we receive the Holy Spirit, we are marked and sealed as God's possession. Thus, through the Holy Spirit, he causes us to be born again with a new nature, as a new person, with a new heart and a new mind and a new identity, to live by a new power, Holy Spirit power. And it's only the beginning. God says, not only am I going to mark you with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you the ability to live out this life, the Christian life, by the power of, of me in you, the Holy Spirit. But then I'm going to make sure you finish until the very end. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, Um As the worship team comes back up, let me conclude this morning with four words that I believe summarize our text. And I want you to see this. It's real simple. God is for us. God is for us. He's for us. If you you let it, this truth can speak to areas of your heart that are fuzzy or are uncertain about whether God is really for you. It can help quiet those fears that God is somehow sitting in heaven with his arms crossed, feeling disappointed about you. Being included means that God doesn't just like you, he loves you. And he has pursued you and initiated a relationship with you. He is a lover who pursued his bride. And we are so secure in him that he left us Holy Spirit as a deposit to guarantee that we'll be his sons and daughters forever. Thus, those days when we don't necessarily feel his presence, we can fall back on on what we know to be true 
through this passage, whether we feel it or not. Remember this. He chose us. He adopted us. He sealed us. He chose us. He adopted us. He sealed us. And we can say, along with the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray. Will the prayer team come on up at this time? Linda alluded to this. I I think it's one of the best things that God has had us to do here at New Heights, and that is we set apart time at the end of our services for, for communion. Jason will talk more about that, but also for prayer. There'll be people all around this room that just want to gather with you and go before the Father. Later on in the book of Ephesians, at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says to pray. Pray in the Spirit. Pray all sorts of prayers. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. You may be here this morning and you're like, man, this is a hard message. On one hand, Lee, uh, I know and love Jesus. I've been adopted by him, but I have family members and their heart is so hard. I want to encourage you to pray. Pray that God would, would break down those walls. Pray that God would bring a spirit of conviction. Pray that God would overwhelm them with his grace. Pray that God would make all their their temples crumbled, all their wells run dry until they find that their their water, the living water in Christ and Christ alone. He can do it. He does do it. He will do it. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, wow, that was heavy. But for the first time, I I realize, whew, I need Jesus. As you often hear me say, today is the day of salvation. I mean, scriptures say that, but I'm quoting that, but today is the day. Everyone around this room, all of our prayer warriors, people on staff, they would love to talk to you about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, right? Not a follower of a denomination, not a follower of a political party, not a follower of a building, right? But Jesus... Father, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, you thought about us. Before it was even created, you couldn't take your your mind, your eyes off of us. Until I was 17, Father, to be honest, I didn't think anyone was thinking about me. But you were. You never weren't. Thank you for that. God, I pray for this morning. I pray that today would be the day of salvation pray that today would be the day of encouragement for those who, who claim you as Savior and Lord, that they are blessed by all these blessings we just read about, God, that their identity is not in the things of this world, but their hope is, as the, the hymn writer says, built on nothing less than Christ and his righteousness. We love you. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.